This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or a homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why yeast? And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey there, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the recently released Homebrew All-Stars, interviews with top 25 homebrewers in the world. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and trying to come up with a way to check it out. All right, and on today's episode, we'll head to the pub to discuss the beer life and uh, catch up with Johnny Law, and then it's off to the lab where we talk about the long-awaited results of the staling episode, and where we go from there, and how we make further results. And then Denny's back off to Wisconsin to interview Just- uh, Justin Apperhamian of Like Minds and Sanford about opening a restaurant, a brewery, and what to do when the state tells you to scram. And we're not doing any uh, Ask Denny and Drew this week because we are gearing up for an all Q&A episode. So please send in your questions, uh, get on the episode, and we're going to actually pick the top three questions. We'll give you a call and actually interview you on the podcast. What a thrill that will be for you, huh? And finally, we're going to close out the show with our quick tip of the week. 
So we just want to remind you uh, that you can support us by going to our website, and there are a number of things you can do there. You go to experimentalbrew.com, and you click on the Patreon link, uh, and you can support our charity. And uh, currently, the charity that we're supporting in the second half of this year is the Children's Tumor Foundation, which supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. And see, I'm actually learning to say that word now. <laughs> you can also uh, click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine or the American Homebrewers Association link to join the AHA, a wonderful organization. Uh, you'll not only be supporting homebrewers and homebrewing, but you'll receive a copy of Zymergy Magazine along with your subscription. So, uh, Drew, listener mail this week? Well, no listener mail this week because we just decided... Uh, quick reminder before everything runs out that we are supporting actively two competitions that are out there right now in the online world because, hey, we're online. They're online. It's an online circle. Uh, first one is the SJ4 Challenge. Remember, we talked about them last week uh, from the BrewTube community. Uh, our international beer competition uh, spots are still open, but you better hurry. And at the same time, you also heard an interview uh, the last episode uh, with the folks behind Brew United. Uh, the Brew United Challenge, uh, they are down actually to 90 entries left on their website currently, which means by the time you'll hear Ooh. this podcast, they're going to be under even that. So if you have any interest in getting into that competition, well, yeah, better in a hurry. And remember, they've arranged for some great prizes, including a couple books from us. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and they've got some really good prizes, too. <laughs> well, hey. <heck. laughs> Okay, so uh, we're going to uh, wander over to the pub, grab a couple beers, and talk about the beer life. We'll be right back after this little musical interlude. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in the Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same. All right, we're sitting here in the pub having a couple beers. What are you drinking this week, Mr. Beecham? Uh, I'm drinking my Saison Experimental that I brewed during the, uh, uh, you know, the Brew of the Falcon Day that we recorded back a while ago. So uh, this one is actually the uh, Willonian uh, blend from the East Bay. And I'm going to write up my notes on it and tell everybody what I think about it uh, once I'm done. Wow. Well, I am uh, drinking a beer here from Ailsong, our newest brewery here in Eugene. Uh, Ailsong Brewing and Blending, they pretty much do nothing but uh, make barrel-aged beers and blend them. They had their grand opening last week. And I am having a uh, Gin Barrel Farmhouse Ale, which is a really nice barrel-aged farmhouse that's uh, dry-hopped and aged in a gin barrel. And man, this beer just rocks. They don't have a 
really wide distribution right now, but should you be someplace in the Pacific Northwest and see Ale Song beers, you need to try them. That's just no doubt about that. See, now that's two of my favorite things, uh, farmhouse ales and gin. Yeah, man, you know what? And I might even uh, go so far as to send a bottle of this down to you because you would just flip over this beer. I mean, everything they make is uniformly excellent. Let me just say that. So, um, enough of pimping the hometown guys. Well, real quick, they they don't, if I remember correctly, I'm talking with you in the past, they don't actually brew wort, right? They take wort from another facility and deal with it. Yeah, they have been uh, they have been brewing their wort uh, I think mainly at Block 15 uh, up in Corvallis uh, about 30 miles from here, another fantastic brewery, but they just built a new brewing facility and like we've talked about before, they have a lot of excess capacity right now so uh, ale song is going up there brewing the wort there trucking it back to their facility uh they stick it in uh, in one of their fermenters for a while and uh, then it goes into one of the vast collection of barrels that they have there so these guys really really know their stuff uh the brewmaster there uh matt van wyck is formerly with uh with oakshire and uh before that, he was with Flossmore Station, so I assume that that's where a lot of his barrel expertise comes from. <laughs> Makes sense. No, so that means we've talked with two different breweries, Rare Barrel and these guys, that have remote brewing operations. So yeah, I, I, what, I put a challenge out there to our listener to uh, listeners to say, hey, do you know another brewery that's doing the same sort of thing? They produce the wort one place and then they ship it someplace else to to do their thing. If so, uh, let us know who that is, because I, I think this is an interesting trend that we need to talk something about. Yeah, I do too, and it's interesting that they've decided that uh, their version of the art is going to be in the fermentation and blending, and they can do that with just about any work from anywhere. I know that that's pretty much the case of Rare, Rare Barrel also. So anyway, we have some updates on uh, on homebrew laws. Why don't you fill us in? All right, so last episode, episode 21, we talked about uh, how North Carolina was currently facing a uh, crisis in the homebrewing community because their ABC was starting to crack down on the use of homebrew and everything else, and it had come forward and basically canceled out some of their competitions, uh, stating that these don't meet the required definitions of private guests and yada, 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 according to the law. Well, after some lobbying internally and some uh, discussions, the North Carolina ABC has sort of backed off their stance and given permission for competitions to go forward with certain criteria having to be met. Like if beers are being stored at a brewery, they have to be on a physically separate pallet, uh, sequestered away from the commercial beer. And when they do competitions themselves, that the, uh, the judges and stewards and everybody else are not mingling with the public, uh, the beer separated from the public and competition organizers aren't allowed to drink. I mean that that seems completely reasonable to me. Well, it, it does. I mean, I, I mean, it, this is again the point where you know sometimes you know we get all grumbly about the efforts of the ABCs and the men's to step on our on our beloved hubby and. Um, so, but if you if you actually sit there and talk like a reasonable human being and and don't get all ranty, sometimes magical things can happen. And. No, this is not to say that the homebrewing community in North Carolina isn't actually still going to make an effort to get the law changed uh, to clarify and make sure that all this stuff is legal because they're still at the point where homebrew club meetings still get a little dicey depending upon your local agent. Uh, home, pouring homebrew at festivals is still somewhat uh, verboten. So they are actually in the midst of getting a law uh, ready to go into the into the state legislature in about 
I think next year in 2017. And if you're interested in helping out with that fight, uh, obviously the AHA will be publishing uh, legislative action into the Southeast for that. But also there's a group of North Carolina homebrewers that are coming together called uh, Operation Liberate Homebrew. And they are organizing to put together the bill and get it uh, moved through the state legislature. Now, that's really awesome. Yay! One one for the good guys. Yay! Now, remember, this is not a unique situation, though, uh, because just as North Carolina was getting their uh, their clearance to go ahead and have their competition, there was a, uh, a statement that came out from the Nebraska Liquor Control Commission, the NLCC, which was basically saying, uh, hey, by the way, homebrewers, you are way not allowed to do some of the stuff that you've been doing. Uh, mostly around the idea of pouring beer at festivals. So there's been a, a big sort of homebrew rights thing that has just risen its ugly head up in Nebraska as well. And basically it's the same thing, you know, where uh, homebrewers are wanting to pour at a commercial festival and the ABC has taken, or uh, sorry, the NLCC has taken the position that uh, no base festival license allows you to pour unregulated beer uh, at these things, and unless there's like special exemptions given, which would be rare, that uh, people uh, are not allowed to do this. So uh, expect to see more of this sort of fight. We are serious that this is literally the next level of homebrew fight, and the reason why we're going to have to still deal with state legislatures, even though we've gotten homebrew legal in all 50 states. Right, and uh, let me just give a little quick piece of advice based on uh, my experience. We had this happen here in Oregon several years ago. Very, very similar situation. Many, many people were outraged and wrote flaming legis- or wrote flaming letters to their legislators. And let me tell you guys, that really doesn't do any good at all. It just makes all homebrewers look like jerks. So the thing to do is stay calm, be reasonable, Talk to these people. Find a legislator who can get on your side. We were lucky to uh, have our, our homebrew bill rewritten by uh, my state legislator, who's actually a homebrewer, and it it worked great. I mean, you know, the the bill just sailed through. So basically, my advice is: if you're dealing with this kind of fight in your state, be cool, be reasonable, make friends, and you will get what you need. Yeah. In other words, don't be a jerk. Yeah, well, you know that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, well, it's it's the will we uh, the will Wheaton law of the internet. You know, don't be a dick. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, as I've seen someone say recently, too many dicks, too few Richards. There you go. All right. Well, and so Denny, I know that we talked about the law, but uh, you're about to go off and do something fun and special. Yeah, I am. I'm about to uh, make my third trip up to Yakima, Washington for uh, YCH Hop and Brew School. Uh, YCH is uh, the company that was formerly known as Hop Union. Now it's an unpronounceable symbol. Uh, <laughs> but uh, every every uh, fall, in, just as hop harvest starts up, they uh, run two sessions of their Hop and Brew School. First one for commercial brewers, uh, second one for home brewers. Uh, they're two days long, um, lectures and seminars in the mornings, uh, which is what I'll be doing. And then in the afternoons, you get to go out and tour hop farms and hop processing facilities. Uh, ends up with a great roundtable discussion with the owners of several of the hop farms around there. Uh, the 
the information you get about hops will just blow your mind and dispel a lot of, of myths that you may have uh, gathered from the internet uh, through the years. Uh, it uh, Registration starts up, I think, around the 1st of July every year. Uh, so basically, if you're going to be free at the end of August, beginning of September, and you want a really great experience, keep your eyes on the YCH Hops website and sign up for Hop and Brew School. It's a great, great experience. Uh, I'll be, like I said, I'll be there. Uh, Gary Glass from the AHA will be coming to do a seminar and, uh, you know, in the past, they've had Stan Hieronymus, they've had John Palmer. And yeah, I know, it's just Palmer, but, you know, that's good, too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him I said that, huh? Uh, anyway, it's, it's a great experience. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm debating whether or not to inflict the ukulele on these poor people. Yeah, I know. Well, and in one of these years, I hope I'll be able to get there. But first, I have to escape the tyranny of uh, modern American uh, major uh, sports leagues. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, well, hopefully I, I, you will get there one year because you would absolutely have a blast. It's it's really, really fun. Uh, and there is beer all day long donated by all the breweries that are there. So Cool figure. So that's what, yeah, really. So that's what I got going on this week. Uh, probably doesn't suck too much. No, not at all. But hey, you know, at least I got to have some fun earlier this week. Uh, yeah, you were in Boulder, right? Yeah, I, I finally made it to Boulder, Colorado, a.k.a. the mothership of homebrewing. Uh, and for those of you who aren't aware, Boulder, Colorado is where the uh, Brewers Association and the American Homebrewers Association are uh, located. Their headquarters are actually two blocks apart from each other. The HA had lived in the offices of the BA until late last year when everybody ran out of room because turns out this whole craft beer boom thing has... Uh, required the BA to ramp up staff and the AHA has had to ramp up staff. So suddenly they were completely out of room in their very, 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 very spiffy three-story offices. Uh, and so I went and I was in Boulder for other reasons. And naturally I went, I have to go visit my friends. So I did. And I went and visited the AHA and BA offices. Now what's really cool is the BA office actually has a really nice bar on the ground floor. And apparently every day at 4.35 o'clock, it opens up for service. And go have a couple of beers. And they also very refreshingly have a number of non-alcoholic sodas as well, which is a nice thing to see. Uh, and so I got to hang out with uh, Paul and uh, Bob and all these other uh, folks that you know uh, ran into Charlie as Charlie was running out the door because Charlie tends to run out the door. Uh, <laughs> everywhere I've ever met the man, he's always <laughs> yeah, on no the move. Uh, now distressingly, I went to the AHA offices and the AHA offices are, you know, small because I mean, it's a small staff. Uh, they have a, a Pico brews Imatic in the office to brew with. Uh, the most amusing thing to me, uh, they're on the second floor. The first floor underneath them is the alcohol education center of Boulder, Colorado, which <laughs> makes me wonder <laughs> who came up with that. Well, pairing. I would say, I would say you could get educated about alcohol with the AHA. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, distressingly, distressingly, even though the AHA offices have their own Zymatic in there and they had fermentation products going, uh, Duncan had a, a batch of cider going in his office, uh, they have no kegerator. There is no homebrew on tap at the AHA offices. This what? is distressing. I know. Indeed. They, they're apparently trying to fix this. 
Uh, they apparently have a keg rider authorized and in flight. Uh, it hasn't been delivered yet. Uh, the promises have been made, uh, but no keg rider. And I found that very distressing. <laughs> Imagine how they how distressing they find it. Well, and I gave Gary a bunch of crap over it because I'm like, really? Come on. And he's like, well, we have the bar two blocks away. Um, but the HA staff was also really excited because while I was there was actually the day after they launched Brew Guru. Uh, or wait, no, actually, I take the back. It was the day they launched Brew Guru. Uh, if you don't know what Brew Guru is, you'll start hearing it in the ads before too long. But Brew Guru is the HA's new uh, app that's designed to help you find member deals, get access to uh, homebrew content. Uh, it has calculators in it, I think. There's just all sorts of stuff. But what's uh, by far and away, I think the coolest feature about it is you can activate the app and tell it, hey, uh, just alert me when I'm near someplace that has a deal. And so you'll be walking along and suddenly your phone will go, hey, by the way, 15% off pints over <laughs> at this brewery that's two blocks away. It's a perfect oh, That experience. could be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it's awesome. So uh, they were really excited and they were, uh, they were uh, ramped up getting ready to watch the numbers and see how everything was doing. Uh, but I do know they had... Uh, what seemed to be a fairly active engagement from their emails out to the membership. So if you are uh, looking for beer information and a chance to be able to read things on your phone in a nice format and all sorts of fun deals, please make sure that you go and download the Brew Guru app. That's Brew Guru. And uh, give it a shot. I had great fun using it while I was in Boulder. It was like walking around and... I swear to God, I couldn't go more than about five steps before it was like, oh, hey, look, you're two, two feet away from another place with a deal. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been anywhere since it came out, so I haven't done much more than just look at it. But uh, I'm gonna uh, now that I'm on the road this week, I'm going to uh, fire it up and uh, see what happens with it. Yeah, and hey, bring me back some hops. <laughs> yeah. We're off to the brewery now to uh, talk about some uh, ingredient shortages and a uh, homebrew club meeting that Drew went to when he was in Denver. We'll be right back. Well, we've wandered over to the brewery now with uh, the remnants of our beers in our hands, and uh, Drew is going to fill you in on an ingredient shortage that may or may not be a good thing, depending on your point of view. Well, I know this is Denny's favorite thing in the world, uh, but it's that time of year when everybody starts thinking, pumpkin, pumpkin, pumpkin. I think we're about uh, two weeks away from the official launch of pumpkin spice everything. Yeah. So... No big surprise, but uh, pumpkin beer has been a trend in recent years, and whether or not you love it or hate it, uh, it's sort of a ubiquitous thing. But this year, apparently, there is an alarming piece of news, which is that the pumpkin supply for this year seems to be down. And unlike in previous years... Oh, gee, I'm, I'm crushed. I know. Well, and unlike in previous years, in previous years, all the major manufacturers, aka Libby, uh, who make the... Uh, <laughs> Most of the pumpkin puree you'll ever find. Libby normally uh, stockpiles a bunch of pumpkin uh, over the years to keep things even for the market. But for whatever reason, they didn't do that this year. And the pumpkin harvest got pushed uh, around and growing season wasn't as great as it should be. So there's actually a shortage. Uh, but the shortage isn't so much wow. like, uh, according to uh, Bart Watson of the uh, Brewers Association, uh, 
the pumpkin shortage isn't so much a shortage as much as a tightening of the market. And they're not actually, if you're Denny, I'm sorry, this is going to come off as tragic to you, but they're not actually expecting there to be fewer pumpkin beers on the market. Oh, crap. Well, and I know. So here's the thing. You may notice that your pumpkin prices are going up for uh, economic reasons, but you'll still be able to find your pumpkin beers if you love them. Now, I will point people to an article series that I started last year, which is basically a better way to pumpkin. Uh, I think our very first episode had pumpkin beers in it. Uh, That's right. And uh, basically, I I prefer if you can't do roasted full flesh pumpkins, which I totally get, you can take the stuff that you can get in the cans and you can actually make it a lot better by almost making it into a pumpkin puree leather uh, with just some slow roasting. And it turns out really awesome if you do it with uh, brown sugar in the mix as well. So, and, and that, we'll we'll post a link to the episode where Drew talked about how to do that, uh, so you can go back and check it out again. Yeah, but uh, in the meanwhile, I would highly encourage people, even though I'm not morally offended by pumpkin beers. I, you know, I've had some that are fine. I've had some that are terrible. Uh, and let's face it, most of the time, pumpkin beer is really just hi. I'm a pumpkin pie spice beer. Uh, right. And that's part of the problem is I think so many of them come off as like so spicy, so sweet and, you know, pie like with those spice uh, flavors that the beer itself suffers. So, in other words, if you're going to make a pumpkin beer, use some pumpkin. Don't go overboard with the spices. And if you are morally offended by uh, pumpkin beer, then I highly, highly recommend that you push back and you try and get people back into malt forward beers, your Oktoberfest lagers, your Scotch ales, you know, your other things that are completely 100% Halloween approved, fall appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That That's not a bad idea at all. You know, if you're not into the, the pumpkin and pumpkin spice beers, then uh, go for something similar, but different, whatever. Basically it's uh, your decision. Drink what you like. Damn it. So uh, when you were out in Boulder, you went to a meeting of Hop Barley and the Ailers, the local homebrew club. And I have to admit, that is one of my all-time favorite names for a homebrew club. Yeah, it is pretty awesome. Uh, and they do a really great job. They've been around for, uh, I think, since 1989, uh, which given that they're in Boulder, it's kind of surprising that, that they're not a little older. But uh, I, I just happened to be in Boulder and, like I said, I went to the AHA offices and I was, I've been curious. I was like... Every time I go on the road, I'll go and check and see, you know, oh, is there a homebrew club meeting happening somewhere nearby? And it turns out the Hot Barley and Ailers meeting was the day after I arrived, which was awesome. And it turns out that their hotel or their meeting location, Boulder Fermentation Supply slash Vision Quest Brewery, was a 10-minute walk from my hotel. So this... How convenient. Yeah, I know. This just seemed to be the universe going, hi, you must attend. <laughs> uh, so... So the, the, I, I heeded the universe's call because uh, I am not one to tempt the fates. And I wandered over to their meeting, uh, meeting and I walked actually into their annual uh, auction. So meeting that they do very much like uh, most homebrew club meetings. Uh, they have a team of people responsible for food. So this time there was a lot of pizza. Uh, people show up, they put bottles down and people share beers and get to enjoy they are in their homebrew supply shop, which is also attached with a nano brewery called uh, Vision Quest Brewery, uh, who I imagine we will be talking to at some point in time because they are completely crazy pants with what they brew and they do it pretty well. And so people were sharing beers. And in the meanwhile, they set up this whole auction where they had 
just an amazing array of things. And it was some of your usual sort of brew gigas, you know, your tankards, your glasses, uh, some uh, random stuff that uh, was like, oh, okay. And then also some really cool experiences like, you know, uh, one of their members who has a store with lots of, you know, rare beers, auctioning off a cellar tasting. You know, come hang out with me on XYZ date and we're going to break into the cellar supply. And this is actually their primary uh, fundraiser for the year. And they make a couple thousand dollars off of it, but it's literally an auction. And they have one of their members who serves as the auctioneer. And I will say I walked away with a couple things, including some uh, some reproductions of Banksy artwork uh, from my office here. And uh, also a really cool handmade beer flight tray. You know, perfectly set up with little chalkboard paint so I could write out what the glasses were. And little cup holders for you know nice small sample glasses. So wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I thought it was I thought it was really cool to see how the club uh, functioned. Uh, you know, like most homebrew things, you know, slightly chaotic because naturally uh, homebrewers. Are, yeah, I mean homebrewers are not naturally organized uh, people, and then uh, add in the beer, and things tend to uh, drift towards entropy faster than normal. <laughs> And, uh, but they, they still, they were having a great time and they, they raised a fair amount of money for their club. And it was really cool to see that as a alternate, uh, income stream and a way to make sure that the club could function. So very cool. Cool, man. That's a, that's a great idea for other clubs too. I mean, and to me, that's one of the great things, uh, like brewing with other people, attending, uh, meetings of other clubs really uh, kind of gets you outside of your box and uh, gives you some ideas about things you can be doing for your club, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And and remember, I mean, for the most part, homebrew clubs are homebrewers, right? You know, it's fun to hang out with ho- other homebrewers if you're deeply into this hobby. So I've never, uh, even when I wasn't a published author, and people were like, ooh, hey, Drew Beecham. Until they get to know me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, even when I was just random Joe Humber, uh, being able to walk into another Humber company, I never had a situation where people got all grousy and grumbly about it or where I felt unwelcome. You know, so by all means, if you're on the road, uh, double check your local area. You can check the HA websites. You can do a search on Facebook because almost everybody seems to have a Facebook group now. Uh, and you can find a homebrew club. And if they're meeting, eh, take a Take a chance. Go show up. Worst thing that happens is you have a couple of beers and you go, yeah, not for me. <laughs> so totally do it. That's It's very cool that uh, you can uh, find time on a work trip to have some fun. So, uh, I, you know, I, you know what they say about all work and no play makes uh, makes Drew a grumpy programmer. <laughs> Drew's already a grumpy programmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. We're going to wander over to the lab now and discuss the results of uh, our malt staling experiment. What happens if you crush malt a month in advance and then brew with it? We'll be right back to talk about that.
Well, we've uh, wandered over here to the lab. We're sitting here with the uh, Bunsen burners and Jacob's ladders going. And uh, we are going to talk about our malt staling experiment results. Uh, Drew, why don't you run down what the experiment was and uh, how it came out? All right, yeah, sure. So, basic homebrewing uh, logic 101. We always tell people, you know, there are a good number of people out there who don't have a mill at home. So they buy their grains at their local homebrew shop, and then they crush them there at the local homebrew shop, and they go home. They have everything stored away in a nice brown paper bag, uh, intending to brew that week, and then life happens. Now, take your pick. Something Something's happened. Your kitten decided to have kittens. Your children decided to have children. Uh, life got in the way. Your car broke down. Uh, meteor fell in your house. Whatever. Life happens, and you that don't... Happens. I- that happens to me all the time, man, when a meteor falls on my house and I can't brew. I just hate it. I know. Well, hopefully one of these days the scientists will figure out a meteor defense system for us. But in <laughs> the meanwhile, right. in the meanwhile, until Elon Musk invents your own portable missile battery, you'll have to deal. Now, so homebrew logic has always told you that, hey, you know, you got to have those grains while they're nice and fresh, you know, be able to. Yeah, you know, be able to make sure that you know your grains are freshly crushed. Otherwise, you're going to get off flavors, and everything will be bad. And then the question always comes because homebrewers are homebrewers and hate spending a dime on something that they're not actually getting value out of. Okay, so how long can I leave my crushed grains crushed before they're no longer any good? So we proposed an experiment uh, to have our Igors uh, go ahead, grab some malt from the exact same bin, put together a very simple version of a recipe uh, that we gave them and have one version of the malt crushed and stored in a paper bag a full month, so 30 days, before brewing. And then they brew and then uh, immediately crush fresh malt and redo the, uh, the brew so that they could have you know, a fresh grain, fresh crushed grain versus a unfresh grain uh, comparison. So, Denny, you want to run down uh, the result that we got? Yeah, the, the result was interesting in some ways and not so interesting in, in others. <laughs> like, how's that for uh, waffling? So, yeah. for the first time, we had only one Igor performing the experiment. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing. There are lots of uh, experimenters who use only one person at a time. But for us, this is this is something new. Uh, Kelly uh, actually came up with uh, nine tasters uh, for his experiment, and five of them were able to successfully identify the beer made with the aged grains. Now, that's like 56% and uh, definitely like way over our uh, our p-value of uh, 0.05 that we usually take uh, to, uh, to mean that uh, the uh, hypothesis is confirmed. So, um, you know, basically people were able to identify that the aged grains beer were different. In general, they found it was sweeter and maltier. Um, and I can't really account for why that would be. Can you? Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that, that a good number of tasters out there associate uh, some minor oxidation flavors with yeah. malt. Oh, that makes sense because when a beer gets oxidized, it gets maltier tasting. You know, that yeah, it gets like a little bit of caramel. Yeah, a little bit of that sweeter thing. Yeah, yeah, 
But, yeah, I, I guess that could make sense. And I should, I'll just throw out my, my own data point here. And while I did not do a comparison, uh, there was a time years back when I had grains crushed for a German Pilsner. Uh, I'm pretty much just straight ahead, uh, best Pils malt. I might have had a pound of Munich in it, I don't recall. Uh, I always keep my grains in a paper bag after I crush them, but I usually use them within a few days. This time I had a relatively serious uh, medical issue come up, and I wasn't able to brew with these grains for five months. Uh, pretty much all I did was uh, stick the paper bag inside of a large plastic bag and keep it in a dark closet with a relatively stable, cool temperature. And five months later, when I brewed with it, although I didn't have a control to uh, to test it against, uh, to my to my taste, the German pills uh, turned out the same as it would have pretty much as if I had uh, used these grains originally. Now, maybe if I had had uh, some fresh crushed grains to compare it against, I would have noticed a difference in maltiness. Uh, bottom line is that storing these crushed grains for five months did not produce an undrinkable beer or a bad beer by any means. So there you go. There's my single data point to add. Well, and I know that we have some uh, some breweries around us and other people who do use pre-crushed grains, for instance, and who knows how long those pre-crushed grains were crushed before they actually get to the brewery. That's right. Um, but now, I mean, with Kelly's results, it, a lot of people, when we first proposed this experiment, were worried about, okay, well, how's weather going to impact this? Well, uh, Kelly kept all the grains in a climate controlled basement. So uh, in theory, a relatively low humidity environment. Now looking forward, I mean, I obviously would love to repeat this experiment because, uh, I like more results being me and I can see a couple different variations of things that we can do. This recipe that we used here was a uh, just a plain Jane, straightforward wheat beer. If it's like my my basic, no nonsense wheat beer recipe, fifty percent pilsner, fifty percent wheat malt, uh, single hop edition, right? You know, and the reason that we went that way was because we wanted to make sure that we weren't going to possibly end up with any influence from a dark malt, uh, because some people out there uh, propose that roasted grains uh, have an antioxidant effect. So yep, that's correct. So I mean, uh, it's correct that they say that. I I, that I won't go right. any further. Uh, so we we wanted to purposely avoid that. So we went with the palest thing possible. Wheat obviously also seems to be uh, a notorious thing that people say goes stale or gets fatty and rancid. So that was, the idea was just to give it a little bit of an extra boost if we could see it. And obviously, this was right on the line, but not but not over the line, so that we could say that yes, there was an apparent difference. Kelly did the right thing. Beers were tasted in opaque cups and did note that, uh, that the aged version was a little bit darker. Uh, but really what I want to see is I would love to see this experiment replicated to with more, uh, more people doing the experiment uh, and also get a better sense of does humidity play an effect? Does it uh, does weather and location play effect? Because for instance, I'm fairly certain uh, Denny, you know, I mean, you just talked about doing this with, grains that were five months old and you live in cool climate, but a moist climate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as a matter of fact, just to uh, take it to the extremes, this was actually during the winter months. So it was uh, as wet as it's going to get around here. Right. Um, but the, uh, the cold also in theory would stave off some oxidative responses. 
Now, yeah. Now, for instance, for me, I live in Southern California, where you know we're lucky if we have more than two molecules of water in the air, and you know it's hot. So that's a different a different profile. And yet, I could see me getting away with grains stored away for a good long period of time because of the lack of humidity. Now we turn around and we go to say my home state of Florida, where it is both hot and you know basically the water uh, the water has some air in it, as I like to say. Uh, yeah, I could see those grains not being able to last. So you know, and it and it may come down to how you store also, because I mean, we all know that, you know, when you store malt, you want to store it as dry as possible. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe an interesting experiment would be to use pre-cut crushed malt, uh, and uh, take one batch that was stored as well as could be done. And another batch that was stored haphazardly and see how that affects things. Yeah. Put things in, in vacuum bags versus brown paper bags that we get from the, the homebrew store. I mean, there are, yeah. there are a number of variations uh, that we that we need to take on this. I think in order to get a better, more complete profile. Now, I will say, I think part of the reason why we only had one experiment on this was not only the lead time necessary to do this uh, uh, this particular experiment, was also the fact that we have, I think, some fears with something like this that could potentially produce bad beer. That we get some people who just want to back away from the experiment because, after all. Who wants to produce one to five gallons of bad beer intentionally? So, oh, I'm used to it. I know. Trust me. <laughs> um, so, one of the things I think that we need to do as research coordinators and researchers is start to put together uh, a way to rescue your beers. Right? I have a whole article that I've written in the past about this, and it's in one of the books about how to rescue your beer so that if your beer does go bad, that you still have a way to have drinkable beer at the end of the day. And maybe that will help encourage some more experimentation. We need to put together a series of uh, beer nine one one things, huh? Yep, absolutely. Before we uh, before we get out of the segment, I just kind of want to finish up with uh, Kelly's overall observations, where he said uh, the beers appear different with the uh, aged uh, grains being a little bit darker, but tasted very similar. The color difference could even be attributed to the boil. From my observation, crushing grains 30 days prior to brewing does not have a negative impact on the flavor. So there you go. For those of you who are afraid to try it because you would make bad beer, look, you make different beer, but it's not bad. So, uh, you know, take a chance, try it out, uh, learn something, share your knowledge with everybody. There you go. It's uh, it's time to head over to the lounge where we get to sit in those comfy chairs and uh, listen to an interview that I did with Justin Aprahamian when I was in Milwaukee. We're going to be right back. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Okay, 
so uh, as we talked about in the last episode, I got to spend some time uh, going around Milwaukee with uh, my good buddy Jonathan Etley from Craftmeister. And uh, one of the people that we got to talk to was a gentleman by the name of Justin Abrahamian. Now, a little bit of background. Uh, Justin is a chef, not a brewer. He uh, owns a restaurant called Sanford, and uh, he started working there along with Jonathan uh, under a guy who had won a James Beard Award as Best Chef in the Midwest. Uh, Justin bought the restaurant, won his own James Beard Best Chef in the Midwest Award, and then decided he wanted to open up a brewery. Well, funny thing is that the state of Wisconsin told him that he couldn't do that and that he should go to Chicago to open up a brewery, which makes no sense at all, which, which we'll be talking about. But Justin being that kind of guy, that's what he did. He went to Chicago, opened up Like Minds Brewery there, and then uh, came back uh, to Milwaukee to run his restaurant and discovered there was huge outrage among, among Wisconsin legislators and citizens that they would send uh, a Wisconsinite to Illinois to open a brewery. So with uh, a number of uh, readings of the rules and interpretations, Justin has been able to open up the Like Minds Brew Pub in Milwaukee. Uh, and, uh, I was there when it was under construction. You'll hear a lot of that uh, in the background here during the interview. So, um, I'll just let Justin speak for himself, sit back, relax, grab yourself a beer, and let's listen to Justin Abrahamian talking about, uh, his philosophy of beer flavors and, uh, what happens when the law tells you to scram. Hey there, everybody. This is Denny, and I am sitting here with Justin Abrahamian in the about-to-be-like-minds restaurant pub brewery. How are you today, Justin? Very good. Thank you. So uh, why don't you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your background. Sure enough. Uh, I started in the culinary field. Uh, basically, my whole life's been in working in kitchens. Um, became super interested in food and kind of just pursued it, you know, doing some catering with my uncles at a young age and then kind of just working through a few kitchens. And then I've been working at Sanford Restaurant since 2002 and I worked up through the line, became the sous chef, chef de cuisine, and eventually bought the restaurant in 2012. Um, big beer enthusiast for most of my life. Um, and at some point, I think it's 2014, me and a friend of mine started uh, pursuing, like, kind of doing some gypsy brewing. Uh, we worked through a few batches of beer, um, things that we thought could be interesting as far as like bringing a culinary background into the beer world. Mm -hmm. um, and so like we started out by doing a rhubarb saison, and then we did a cucumber pilsner, and we did a wheat pale ale with black currants and lemon verbena, and then a coffee stout. And so these things kind of worked their way through the course of a year. So not only landing seasonally as far as the style is concerned, but also seasonally as far as like the products we were using. Right. So I understand that you tried to get a brewery open here in Milwaukee a while back, and they told you to get the hell out of town? Essentially. <laughs> yeah, we, we tried to open. So at the end of that year, 2014, of doing the Gypsy Brewing, and then, um, you know, we, we, we kind of, we had some great enthusiasm about what we were doing. We had some people on board, so we were trying to open a brewery in Milwaukee, and we were told by the state of Wisconsin that because of my retail liquor license at Sanford Restaurant, 
that I couldn't also, you know, be a partner that had a brewer's license. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't really a lot of conversation about how to work through it or like talk through it. It was basically, we were told no, we were told go to Illinois, um, where we could, where we could then do it in Illinois. Um, but then, you know, one of the things that was, you know, interesting about that situation also was we wouldn't be able to sell our beer in Wisconsin at all. The same, the same rule that said I wouldn't be able to get a brewer's license in the state also said that we wouldn't get an out-of-state seller's permit. Wow. So we were basically like, we were out of the state. Totally shut out. Totally shut out, and then we wouldn't even be able to bring the beer back into the state. <laughs> Man. <laughs> so we, we, took their, we took their advice. Now, I don't think they thought that it would happen. We took their advice. We got a spot in Chicago. We, we, you know, we hit the ground. We, we got the equipment in, and we did a lot of it without people knowing. And so once it came, the news came out that we actually like, followed through with this, um, it, it made kind of a splash that, you know, <laughs> that the state would tell, you know, business to leave the state. You know, we have a reputation yeah, with Wisconsin, Stanford restaurants, yeah. you know, Wisconsin has a beer reputation. Like this all seemed like it should have been like a really good fit for the state and the city. And in a time when we're concerned about, you know, jobs and opportunity and, you know, revenue for the state. And it just, it struck everybody in a really odd way that this is how it kind of, you know, unraveled. Right. Um, but not to say that everybody was was negative about it. We had we had people calling like I had a, a, a state rep from the area that called the next day and was like, we need to talk. Like we need to get to the bottom of, of why this is, you know, what happened, why it happened, and I want to understand the process and then what we can do to help, you know, fix the situation. Yeah, yeah. And he basically championed our call cause. Uh, his name is Dale Coinga. He pushed us in the right direction, got us in the room with the right people to have the right conversations, and was basically doing everything in his power to see that the situation was fixed. State representatives don't like it when business gets sent out of no, the state. No, and, and he's on the finance committee, like, and oh, he's, he's pro-business, like, he's, he's, you know, he's a champion of a lot of, a lot of great causes, and, you know, he got behind us, we're probably not going to name a beer after him or something <laughs> at some point. <laughs> But um, yeah, Dale. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure another brewery will get mad at us for that. But, um, <laughs> no, like so, they, you know, they got behind us and kind of really got us in the room with the right people and kind of you know leveraged some talking points. And um, it turns out we were able to ultimately work back into the state. Right. And from what I read in the newspaper article, it's because like you're the sole owner of Sanford and this is a partnership. So it's kind of a different thing. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, and, and that applies for a brewer's license specifically in the state of Wisconsin. Like we wouldn't qualify for a brew pub license, but because for the brewer's license, my retail liquor license, we only sell, you know, X percent fermented malt beverage, mm -hmm. you know, and this is the other odd stipulation that strikes a lot of people in a weird way is that the only place that cannot sell like mine's beer is my restaurant, Sanford, because that gets into like the Tide House concerns then oh, and everything. So man. like, so the, the stipulations are is that I cannot sell my own beer at my other restaurant, <laughs> <laughs> and that my other restaurant is mostly a restaurant that it's majority food sales, right? And not so you know then the tavern looks happy that we're not moving a ton of beer through that place. <laughs> How, you must wake up every morning just shaking your head. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy situation, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we're back in the state. You know, this project means more to us here, like, mm -hmm. to be able to do the restaurant, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to work with the relationships with people we have, you know, here in the state as far as, you know, product and sourcing and, you know, doing the food and everything. Like, so it means a lot to us to be able to get back and do it here. Um, so I'm, I'm ultimately, that's the priority. You know? Yeah, well, and the fact that you managed to maneuver your way through all this legal stuff is bound to help other people down the road. It, it actually yeah. has already. It's actually opened up talking points. It's opened up conversations. So we actually have 
um, put our friends in contact with the same people that we had been talking to, you know, to kind of work through some of their issues. Right. Not, you know, nothing structurally in the law has changed, but I think the willingness to have the conversations is now there, you know, whereas to, we were just told, no, Mm -hmm. beat it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, now it's, you know, they're, they're very willing to talk, Mm -hmm. you know, so like the conversations are there where they're working through the issues as opposed to just shutting the shoes down. Right. So from what I gather from reading about you is that your inspirations for beers are, you know, based in your culinary experience. And while you don't brew yourself, you kind of like bring the skills you've learned through that and, and, and the flavors and tastes you've learned through that to the beer, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a big part. That was a huge part of our jumping off point. And, you know, even, even us as like a little operation has evolved since then. You know, my partner, John, is very into, you know, the science of the brewing. And, you know, that's why I think he can understand it so well. But a big part of all of our talking points to begin with, which led us to the point that we should be making beer potentially, <laughs> was, was just that, was the, was the culinary focus, the, you know, this idea of combining ingredients and styles and flavor profiles, you know, we thought was really interesting. You know, to bring that idea to the table, you know, the analogy of like, I haven't been trained in brewing, so I'm not thinking within the confines of what a normal brewer would. Right. So, you know, whether that's purely an ingredient that a brewer would never want to use, or a combination of ingredients, or harnessing ingredients in different ways that you know brewers wouldn't normally be thinking about. So, and and you've really built this facility here to kind of make that easy to do. I mean, you were showing us around the kitchen, and there's a, a much larger than normal prep area, so you can like prep ingredients yes. for the brewery. Yeah. So too, we right? we had been doing some prep for the beers out out of the Sanford kitchen for a while, which if anybody knows of the Sanford kitchen or restaurant itself. It's a very tiny place, tiny walk-in cooler, a tiny kitchen. And so like anytime we had to do any of the projects, it, it could become crippling in a sense that, you know, we had a lot of space dedicated to it, you know, so we had to be really organized. So here we want to be able to focus on the restaurant and, you know, do the food and the quality we want to do, but, you know, not get hunkered down when we need to process 900 pounds of rhubarb for right. saison or, you know, juice 500 pounds of cucumbers for a small batch of cucumber colch or whatever, whatever it may be. So we basically have set ourselves up here to be able to like do both things really well. So spatially, we have a lot of prep space to be able to process ingredients going into fresh beers, process ingredients that are going down into our, you know, sour beer program Mm -hmm. and even the storage space just to absorb these things up here. So yeah, it's basically, there was a lot of thought going into it. We've learned some lessons along the way in what we've done that we think that, you know, this will give us a better chance to succeed. And you said you've just uh, started acquiring some barrels and getting into yeah, that we, side of things? Yeah, we, we found a winery that was shifting from wood to stainless, and so they wanted to unload their whole collection of oak, and we, said we're, very, we said we're very willing to take, that, <laughs> to take that on. And so we've got, you know, um, a, a nice chunk full, and we're, we're, you know, kind of filling as we're going now. Uh, we've got a handful of styles that we've been playing with, and, you know, a couple different versions of Saison with different yeast strains. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got some Berliner Weiss and bourbon barrels. We've got um, Sour Brown. We've got some Golden Ale. And, you know, so it's just kind of evolving as it's going. And to me, I see a lot of potential in that project, you know, it, right. to, to double back on, you know, the culinary ideas and stuff like, you know, each each one of those beers and even down to each wine barrel could be like its own palette its own platform you know like we could we could go so small batch that you know a single wine barrel could become a beer for the brew pub or like a, a limited you know kind of bottle release if we got something really exciting to do like right. on that small of a scale you know 
So, and you're, you're pretty much just sticking to sours in the barrels at this point? Yeah, we, we want to do, we do want to do some stouts and do some other beers in, in barrels. We'll probably try and do that up here just so we don't end up with any kind of cross-contamination sure. between. Um, so in Chicago, most of the barrels right now are, are exclusively sour. So you were talking about a beer you made that had like all kinds of like grilled citrus fruits in it? So we did a, a Berliner Weiss that we put into bourbon barrels and we char grilled a mixture of citrus fruits, uh, oranges, lemons, and grapefruits, uh, charred them, chopped them, you know, chopped them up, and then put them in the bourbon barrel with the, with the Berliner over it. And that's you know, so good. This, it's, we're, we're excited about it. I mean, we've been trying it along the way and, and the maturation of, of these flavors developing and, you know, as, as the weather warmed up and it, you know, a little more extraction sure. from the wood and, you know, seeing these things happen, it's, you know, to me, that's the exciting part about what we're doing is that we're, we're, we're picking a specific wood for a specific beer and then a specific ingredient and they all, it's like building a dish, you know, right. like yeah, every, everything, everything has a place, everything has a purpose. You know, we're tying all these things together, like, very thoughtfully. Right. You know, so, like, normally, I guess you wouldn't see a Berliner maybe in a bourbon barrel, but for us, it was, like, that with the citrus fruit, you know, so the bourbon doesn't drown out the Berliner because the citrus is going to kind of play back in and, and kick up some of the quality that maybe you would lose from that Berliner. But then the char, you know, all these things kind of start to play together. Yeah, right, man. I mean, that, that is really thinking like a chef, you know? Uh, so what are some of your favorite flavors, you know, what, what it, when, when you're sitting back and going, oh, man, that would be really good in a beer, what are, what are some of the... Th For me, I really like acidic fruits. You know, like, I really like black currants. I really like rhubarb. I really like, you know, like citrus fruit in general. Um, you know, we do a beer that we, we do a, it's like a, like a wheat pale ale kind of that we do black currants and lemon verbena. Lemon verbena is an herb, like really kind of like citrus forward, herbaceous. Um, so this is another thing where you, like you start to put building blocks together. Yeah, so the right. black currant plays really well with lemon in general, and you know the lemon verbena starts to tie into the hot profile, the pale ale, you know, yeah. and all these things start to kind of build. And like you know, we're using notes to accentuate other notes, and you know, like the lemon verbena makes the hot profile a little more complex without even like people realizing that that's what it's coming from. That's really cool. Uh, I will mention also that uh, this brewery uh, that we're sitting in right now is under construction. Dude, it opened in a couple weeks, so every once in a while you'll hear sounds that uh, are unexplainable, and I won't try to explain them. I won't either. <laughs> so what do you think is like maybe the most unusual beer you guys have made so far? The most unusual? The Blackcurrant one, I think has potential to be the most unusual, just because yeah. it's some things that people I don't know normally would associate in the beer making process. Uh, we have another, we have a beer in the works that I don't know how much of it I want to divulge. Okay. Well, we'll kind of, I think, be a, a little unusual. The secret beer. Is there, is there anything you've tried that just has not worked at all and has been an utter failure? Um, there are things we haven't been as excited about, but... I don't think anything's been an utter failure to the point that we've scrapped it entirely mm -hmm. as far as like, you know, back to the drawing board. But there's been, you know, we had been playing around with grapefruit and some beers in a sense that like we weren't happy how it was coming across. And so like kind of we, we've redirected our, our brainstorming on those things. So I don't know that anything's been really like an utter failure, but, um, you know, that's, that's part of the process. And for me, sure. I mean, I guess that's in the kitchen. I don't think anything's ever really a failure. You just have to kind of redirect that energy and kind even, of keep going. Yeah, even if it's not what you want, you learn something exactly. from it. You know, you so know? everything's an education, educational process, and you know, we, we we pick the pieces up from those things and say, 
what did we learn from that? What could this be? You know, how did that react that maybe we can harness that the next time or like certainly don't do that the next time? <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I always tell uh, home brewers is take really good notes because if you turn out with something really good, you want to make sure so you, you can do, do it, it again. again. Yeah, and if you turn out with something really bad, you want to make sure you never do that again. We, we, we are the same way in the kitchen. So yeah, we're, we're very, um, you know, see eye to eye on that one for sure. So what's... Do you have like an overall philosophy about beer and, and, and what it should taste like and what it should do for people? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> overall philosophy, I would say, um, you know, we just want it to be something someone enjoys. We really want, you know, part of our thought and approach was we want to make beer seasonally. That, mm -hmm. you know, that like I, I kind of touched on it before that, you know, like we made the rhubarb saison in the spring. And to me, it's just, you know, that's something you really want to be drinking in the spring, like that style of beer, that flavor profile. Right. You know, and then we worked into the summer and we did the cucumber, and it's a Pilsner style, it's lighter, and then the cucumber is really refreshing. So it's something you want to sit outside on the patio and just, you know, drink several of and enjoy. You know, that's, that's really important to us, just, you know, that people are excited about it, that they want to enjoy it. Um, and then also, like, we're just, you know, the... The integrity of what we're doing, you know, we really like, kind of like we do in the kitchen, we just, we want to be really proud of, of the beers we're doing, you know, we want to source the best ingredients we can to do the beers, you know, we're working with the same farmers for ingredients for beers as we are for, you know, the restaurant. Yeah, right. You know, and so for us, we're not cutting corners, we're not, you know, buying extracts to dump into to the barrels or, you know, like we're not putting questionable things in to, to fill spots. You know, so like we're, we're really about, you know, these, these products and being excited about these products. And, you know, we're kind of always focused on like, why are we doing this in the first place? All right. You know, like, why did we start? There's a lot of breweries out there. There's a lot of yeah. people that make phenomenal beer. Like, we'll never, you know, hold a candle to a fair amount of what that is. But, you know, we feel like we've got a little niche that we can focus on. And if we're excited about that and we stay excited about that, I think there's going to be enough people excited about it to kind of support what we're doing. So... So when you get home from work at the end of a long day, what beer do you want to drink? It's not a good answer. Uh, <laughs> we, I, we'll, we'll, we'll drink a lot of High Life in the kitchen at the end of the night. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> I, I am not a beer judgment person. <laughs> they all have their place, I feel. You know, and at, at the end of the night, you know, when we've been pouring sweat on a 100-degree line, yeah. you know, there's, there's something about just a beer that's really clean and refreshing like that. Well, you know, and it's, it, you know, the whole purpose of drinking beer is to enjoy it. So it's like, drink what you like and don't worry about what somebody else exactly. thinks about and, it. And in those moments, there is not a lot more refreshing than that. And then also you want to think about we're, we're dehydrated. So if we start putting down some high alcohol beer at the end of the night, we're probably going to be drunk pretty quick. People so. end up sleeping in the kitchen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's thoughtful on a couple levels, I guess. But yeah, it's ultimately like, you know, the most refreshing thing we could get at the end of the night at that point. So, uh, any, any other thoughts about beer in general? Something that you, like, wish more people would drink more of or something that you wish more people would think about in relation to beer? Um, you know, I just, I wish people would be as open-minded about beer as they are about food. You know, the, the food industry has come a long way. You know, exposure to, to things, ingredients, processes, you know, like there's, you know, food TV had done a lot to expose a lot of people to a lot of things. And, you know, I know beer is going that way and it's come a long way mm -hmm. with that exposure, but, you know, I think, and it's, it's gotten a lot better that I've seen, you know, just with, we've seen the traffic through Sanford, but, you know, people's willingness to, 
to just try new things. You know, I think that will help kind of keep pushing people in the right direction. And right. So, uh, in line with that, are you are you guys like big into like giving little samples of your beers, a little taste to people? When... I, I don't think we're opposed to that. Um, we haven't really gotten into the mix where we are. Yeah, okay. are doing that I'm... yet. But I, I you know, I, I I can see it coming up, especially with some of the styles of beer that we're doing. I can see that certainly being like. The thought process. Yeah, and I just wonder because I have read about uh, some places that are not allowed or not interested in you know giving samples, and it's like, well, that's silly. Yeah. You know, I mean, with food, that's a little bit more difficult, but with beer, all you got to do is open the tap just a, a little, little bit. bit yeah. yeah so. We've re- I've read varying opinions on the matter as far yeah. as people keeping track of it from an accounting standpoint, like how much they're pouring out, but then. You know, somebody else on the flip side of that, you know, the point counterpoint of that was, you know, these samples ultimately led to these sales right. and kind of pushed us down down this road. So yeah, a two ounce sample will end up selling a pint. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know, so I mean, I'm certainly we're certainly not opposed to it. You know, I think just as long as people don't take advantage of that kind of situation where they <laughs> they sit and taste through your entire line of beers and then you know they're on their way out of the restaurant. I'd like uh, 18 samples and <laughs> I got to get going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So outside of beer and food, what are you like obsessed with or like totally into when, when you want to get away from all this? It's hard to get away from all this. <laughs> yeah, I know. But when, when you just can't take it anymore, what, what occupies your thoughts? Um, I, I read a fair amount. I mean, a lot of cookbooks, but then, you know, some literature and other things outside of that. And I'm a big music fan. I've got, I got a big record collection. I love going to see shows when I can. So I kind of immerse myself in kind of that that world to get away. And I've got a, a son that's about two years old that's become a great distraction. Oh, nice, And, and I'm like kind of a shining light that when I get out of here, I can get home and see my son and my wife. And, you know, that, that alone sometimes is enough, um, often, often enough right. to get out and, and, you know, kind of regroup with that, you know. <laughs> get your mind off of, uh, off of the other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Well, man, thank you so much for your time. I know that you've got so much to do, so I'm not going to keep you any longer. But uh, Justin Apprahamian, thank you so much for being with us, and best of luck to you, buddy. Thank you. It was an honor to, uh, for you guys to think of us. Thanks, man. Absolutely. All right, so that was uh, me talking to Justin Apprahamian with uh, construction going on all around us. Uh, it's just a beautiful place, and he is making some delicious and interesting beers. Uh, if you're in the Milwaukee area, if you happen to be passing through and you have a chance, stop in there and uh, try his beers, try the brew pub. My biggest regret about the whole trip was that we didn't have a chance to get over to his restaurant, Sanford. And I'll tell you, it's uh, enough to make me think that maybe I need to fly halfway across the country again to go there and check it out. It's always nice when you find a place like that. Yeah, no no kidding, man. He's just the nicest guy. And, uh, you know, bringing his culinary thinking to the beers and... And his collaboration with his brewers uh, has just produced some stunning, stunning results. I guess it's time for something other than beer now, huh? Indeed. And it's going to be a quick one this time. Uh, So, obviously, we're both deeply uh, passionate about cooking as well. And uh, as if you've listened to the show uh, enough, you know that uh, also I'm deeply passionate to exploring YouTube and finding new videos to watch because content 
Um, and there's a channel out there on YouTube called Taste Made, and it's one of the bigger ones. Uh, they have all sorts of funding, and I think they're somehow actually officiated, uh, officially associated with uh, um, Google. Uh, I know they use the Google YouTube studios and whatnot. But while most of their shows are around cooking or you know some sort of exploration type thing, they just recently launched a new flight of shows, and of them there's this one called Alice in Paris. And unlike most uh, cooking videos, these this is really sort of a a love letter to Paris and the different culinary institutions that you can find there. And it stars a girl named Alice, or I think her actual name is Elise. Uh, but the whole thing are these very very short videos, like uh, one to two minutes long, uh, of her telling some sort of whimsical story and exploring that always ends up like in a restaurant or a cafe or something like that. And they're these wonderful kind of combination of travelogue and Amelie. And they're really just so damn adorable and cute that you kind of want to spin yourself up in a little cocoon of these things, but you only get about a minute or two minute hit of it uh, every week. And then it goes away. And it's just really one of those things that you kind of have to love because they're so, so relentlessly charming. <laughs> And, and, and I'm saying that as a guy who is like, like super cynical, not, you know, not wanting to find myself in a hug. Uh, but these things really do feel like a very warm embrace from your favorite French friend who is just a little nutty. That sounds very interesting, man. I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> yeah. I highly, I highly recommend it. So Go, uh, go forth and find it. Uh, the Taste Made YouTube channel, Alice in Paris. We'll link to it in the in the episode description. But that's my something other than beer this week because I think it's fun. Cool. Uh, and you also have our quick tip this week, huh? Yeah, I do. And, and guess what? It's also on YouTube. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Amazing. When does this guy have any time to work? He's always watching YouTube. Yeah, well, hey, you know, uh, who, who says I have to be paying attention in a meeting? Um, all right. No, but seriously, uh, the other thing that we want to bring back around for a uh, quick tip, uh, Chip Walton, uh, who you all know nowadays as uh, Mr. Chop and Brew, formerly of Northern Brewers Brewing TV, along with uh, Jeff and Mike, uh, he, uh, about four years ago or so, uh, when, uh, God, when, uh, where were we for that conference? That was Minneapolis, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. So uh, four years ago, I gave a talk uh, at the conference called Brewing on the Ones. You've heard me refer to the philosophy before, uh, and it's all about simplification. And Chip actually, uh, back then, because he was doing Northern Brewer stuff and Northern Brewer was paying for video content, uh, taped my talk and edited it together and actually reduced it in time uh, from the running length of 55 minutes of me yabbering to a nice... Uh, brisk 30 minutes and put it up on YouTube on Northern Brewers channel. And it still pops up on my feed every once in a while. And I still get uh, uh, commentary and people asking me questions uh, based on the content that's in there. But by all means, if you haven't heard that talk, I know it's kind of be a little self uh, promotional. Go listen to it. I've, I'm still very, very super proud of that talk. And I think it's still something that influences how I brew today. So, uh, in one brief sentence, what is Brewing on the Ones? Brewing on the Ones is a system of forced constraints that is designed to really make you think about what it is that you're putting in your beer. So, we know smash beer, single malt and single hop. Uh, It's a 
great uh, great exploration style, but kind of can produce some uh, rather lackluster beers or it's too much constraint. So brewing on the ones is basically choose a single malt, choose a single hop, choose a, uh, or sorry, choose a single base malt, choose a single hop, a single yeast, and single special ingredient. So, uh, or a single specialty grain, that sort of thing. So the idea is that you get a little bit more room to run. Uh, and because mm-hmm. of that, you can get into some things like Belgian quads, right? Belgian quads are right. Pilsner, dark candy sh- syrup, and basically single hop edition. Yeah. And, right. and what it really does, the whole idea is force you to stop the kid in the candy score syndrome. We'll talk about this in the talk uh, where, yeah, you basically run around and go dance between all the different grain bins and go, oh, I'll put a little craft in. I'll put a little special bee in. I'll put a little brown malt in. I want some biscuit tons. So I'll throw in some aromatic, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and the next thing you know, you end up with a beer that's all kind of muddled and messy. So it's really, it's a focusing device. That's cool, man. It's a, it's a good idea. Uh, I do a lot of beers like that, although I have to admit that for most of mine, I like more than a single hop. But it's it's a great discipline to uh, to get yourself to focus on how those ingredients are going to interact. If you watch the talk, you'll see I talk about like you know going beyond that, but still using it as a tool to kind of help you keep clean. Yeah. Right, exactly, and and especially especially in the grain world, people have a tendency to throw in a little of this, a little of that, and that could really help you focus there. Absolutely. So it's time for our question of the week this week, and our question is, what do you think about the staling experiment? Have you brewed with old pre-crushed malt? What were your experiences? Uh, if you have thoughts or experiences you want to share with us and the rest of the listeners out there, please email them to podcast at experimentalbrew.com and uh, we'll talk about uh, your thoughts uh, when we get them. So, uh, Drew, quick recap of what we did this week. All right, let's see. What did we do this week? Oh, my. Uh, well, we obviously, uh, don't forget, SJ Poor Challenge and Brew United Challenge. Uh, go listen and uh, thank our sponsors for uh, uh, giving us some money so that we can do this show. Uh, we talked about the legal situation, both in North Carolina and Nebraska, and why it's important that you do it. Uh, we talked about visiting the uh, AHA and uh, BA offices. We also went to hop school with Denny. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to spend some more time there uh, in upcoming episodes. Uh, we talked about our staling results. You know, what happens with, uh, you know, when you leave that malt uncrushed or crushed? We talked about uh, hot barley in the Ailers meeting, and we also talked about the shortage of pumpkin. Uh, and finally, hey. yeah, <laughs> shush. And, of course, we also went to Milwaukee, and we talked with sort of the crazy, crazy creative mind of, you know, brewing, and probably the only time that anybody's ever been told it's easier to open something up legally in Chicago than it is in Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> And finally, really? a couple of things on YouTube to close you out and have a good day. So uh, thanks a whole bunch, guys, for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. I'm on a huge number of uh, beer discussion groups out there, and you can find Drew on the homebrewing section of Reddit. So if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. 
or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually to tell us something secret that the other guy shouldn't know, I'm Denny at Experimental Brew, and he is Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. So until next time, remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Yeah.